We have, or I have, embarked upon a series that won't be short. It hasn't been short. I think this is a sermon like 13 or 14 or 15 or something like that. But what we're doing is we're considering uh, what place the law of God, and I'm concentrating on the Ten Commandments, if any, should they have in our Christian walk of sanctification. And so what we start, what I have done is I said, well, we got to start at the beginning, because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then if you jump down in Genesis 1, God creates a man, male and female, in his image, after his likeness, and if you go and read the rest of the Bible and ask the question, does the rest of the Bible shine any light on that initial creation of both Adam and Eve, and the answer is yes, we find that they had the work of the law written on their hearts, But if you read the Genesis 2 account, we also see another law that's outside their hearts, that's not internal to them, that's not natural, it's above nature, it's other than nature, that is, other than made. It is uh, published by God subsequent to Adam's creation, that is the prohibition. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he has law internal and he has law external, both forms of revelation. One based on creation itself, another one based on subsequent revelation by God to test Adam in the garden. We assume that Adam would have told Eve that. We know from the fall, the account of the fall, that he did. They took and they ate and death came upon them just as God had threatened them. But they were created morally upright. They were created with this gift that older theologians have given us a phrase for it, original righteousness. That, that is, they could, uh, like Adam did with Eve, when Adam saw Eve, he had the furniture in his soul to conclude, I need to say something about marriage now. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. We don't have a lot of information there. But as we observe Adam in his unfallen state, He's respecting one of the commandments in the Ten Commandments by identifying Eve as as his wife or bride. They were able to look out into the world of creatures, identify something, analyze it, and, and will things that were in strict accordance with the law within them. Uh, now, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't do that now. We lost in our first parents the gift of original righteousness, but we still have this sense, and everybody has it, that some things are right and some things are wrong. Sometimes when uh, older type theology is preached from a pulpit, like you get every week, people say, well, you prove that the Ten Commandments are the binding moral law of God for all people, Why don't people do this, that, or the other? How come there's this, that, or the other? Because the fall into sin. Matter of fact, not long after, if you read the book of Genesis, it's almost like a history of sin. There's a lot of sin going on. So much so that by the time you get to Genesis 6, there's a worldwide flood in judgment because of all the sin that was out there. Some cultures have been affected more by Christianity than other cultures. So cultures in the world throughout history that have been affected more by Christianity hear the Bible preached to them, okay? So they learn some things other than that which is in their, just in their heart. They learn some things from the Bible, and there is a cultural tendency at times of more external conformity to that which is written within. Our own country is a witness to that. Some of you are old enough to remember the blue laws. I don't know if there are any blue laws now, but I lived in a state for a while where, for instance, you couldn't purchase alcohol on Sundays because they wanted you to go to church. Uh, All you had to do is go to the next county because not all the counties had the same laws. Or you couldn't purchase hard liquor. You could only purchase beer during certain hours. that's That's a vestige. That's a hang. Hangover? That's a hangover from a previous era where our culture was more affected by what scripture teaches, bringing out of even lost hearts and souls a sense that some things are right and some things are wrong. 
So they had the law of God written on their hearts. They had original righteousness. Um, They were given an additional law prohibiting them from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They ate and death came upon their souls, then their bodies. God threatened them, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we looked at that last week. They died. No, they didn't die. Their souls weren't uh, separated from their bodies immediately, but their souls and their bodies were infected by divine judgment upon them. And, And so by the time you get to Genesis 4, what do their kids do? Well, one of them murders the other one. See, there's, there's sin pretty soon. You're, you might be thinking, well, that's so, so far back, so close to Adam and Eve. I thought, you know, Cain would have been a little more, more morally upright. He's totally depraved. Okay? Something catastrophic came upon the human race. So today, what I want to do, having looked at Adam and Eve in their created state, uh, we looked at some of the... Th- other things as well. Adam's a type of him, Christ who was to come. Eve was a type of the church, taking our cue from Paul in Ephesians 5, that that was a great mystery, but nonetheless it was there. Then we looked at the two Edenic trees, and then last week we finally got to the fall into sin, 12 or 14 sermons into the series. At this rate, I'll be 312 by the time we get to the New Testament. Uh, but I'm trying to do a survey, and it's, uh, I am a gospel preacher, so I try to preach the gospel every week, beat it into your heads, like Martin Luther said, because we tend to forget it. So, so we're at this side of the fall into sin. The technical word is lapse or fall. So you have the pre-lapse, the before the fall era. We already dealt with that. Then you have the lapse or the fallen state. That's where we started last week. And then you have... Uh, Our focus was on Adam and Eve and the judgment that came upon them. And by the way, the judgment that came upon the serpent as well, which has within it an implied uh, gospel promise. The seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. So we're on this side of the fall into sin. So this is the lapsarian period, the fallen period, the fallen state. And we're going to look at, we're going to go from the fall to Sinai today. Sinai is a mountain in the ancient uh, Middle East where God revealed to Moses and his people the Ten Commandments on stone tablets. And we're going to ask the question, is there any evidence that there are pre-echoes, pre-echoes, that's a weird word, huh? Uh, are there between the fall into sin and Mount Sinai, do we see evidence that there's a standard of morality, right and wrong, that people are being judged by? And I think everybody would say yes. And if you don't say yes, you will after today. And if you don't, you just you need to drink more coffee or something. Um, and what is that standard of judgment? Is it revealed between the fall into sin and Israel at Mount, and Moses at Mount Sinai? Uh, is the standard of is there a standard of judgment? Yes. What is that standard of judgment? Is there evidence that points us in a good direction? So I'm going to conduct a very brief overview of evidence in the scriptures for the presence of law prior to uh, the old word is, is the promulgation. Now you've heard that word before, and if you're anything like me, at first you're going, yeah, I know what that means. But if somebody said Tell me. You go, eh. So here's what I did several years ago. I looked it up in the dictionary. Promulgation. A formal public presentation of something. Okay? Uh, in a, a new form of something. This would be on stone tablets. Written by the finger of God. The execution of divine power. So is there evidence for the presence of law prior to the promulgation of the Ten Commandments, the moral law at Sinai? Though the evidence does not have a law code in it. So is there evidence, but not a law code? Like you can't go to Genesis chapter 4 and says, okay, here are the Eight Commandments, or here are the Ten Commandments, or here are the... It's not... The Ten Commandments aren't revealed 
in Scripture as a body, as a unit, until Exodus 20. But are there ev- is there evidence? Are there hints that something's unique about what we end up calling the Ten Commandments even before Mount Sinai? In other words, are there pre-echoes prior to Sinai of any of the Ten Commandments? And I'm going to say, well, yes. And the next question is, well, how many of them? I'm going to say, all ten. You're going to say, wait, wait, wait a minute. All ten? And the answer is, well, of course. Now, prior to the giving, uh, excuse me, a reading of the book of Genesis after the fall into sin will reveal to us that Adam and Eve were not the only sinners in the ancient world. Do you agree with that? Adam and Eve were the only sinners. They were the only transgressors of the law. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is transgression of the law. Only Adam and Eve were lawbreakers. Why did God judge the earth in Genesis 6 through 9? There were other lawbreakers, right? What law were they breaking? By the way, are there more sinners than we read about in the book of Genesis in the ancient world? Yes. Okay, the focus is on, for a reason, the focus is on, is on Abraham and his family. Because the, the, the promise of the skull-crushing seed of the woman, which was first delivered by God in right after the fall into sin, was passed on to Abraham, and then God is going to prepare the world through Abraham and Abrahamites for the Messiah. But there's a lot of sin going on among the Abrahamites, as we'll see, because they're all Adamites, fallen in sin. Prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments, there is a law in place from which judgment is made to identify actions and thoughts as either acceptable or not to God. If you've read the book of Genesis, you know that. And and I, I think I said this in the first sermon in this series. There's a natural instinct in us, especially if we as we've read the Bible, to use the Ten Commandments as the ethical grid through which We judge people in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. Ah, look at Abraham lying, saying Sarah wasn't his wife. Liar, liar, pants on fire. But there's no thou shalt not lie prior to Exodus 20. So how do you deal with that? Well, if you're thinking, you're going, well, uh, Exodus 20 uh, is a public... um, uh, presentation or revelation of some things that are already, man's already responsible for. And if the next question is, well, upon what basis? His creation. So we have creation-based ethics that men and women are held responsible for before the Ten Commandments are given that are actually in line with the Ten Commandments, which it shouldn't uh, surprise us. This natural law uh, is based on creation. So when we see it assumed as a grid through which judgment is being pronounced or the opposite is being pronounced, somebody is being commended for something good, like Joseph, which we'll look at if I ever get there, Joseph's commended for being pure, sexually pure. Um, But, you know, the commandment about thou shalt not commit adultery isn't stated word for word until Exodus chapter 20. So these things are based on creation. We are created in the image of God, and though we're fallen, the law based on our creation carries over into the fallen state. The law that finds its basis in creation, written on the hearts of Adam and Eve, would carry over, in terms of its function, into the fall, the lapsarian state. So that we should have an assumption, once we've studied Genesis 1, 2, and 3, in light of the rest of Scripture, the assumption is this. There's something about man creating the image of God for which he's responsible. 
What we find in the narrative from Genesis 3 up to Exodus 20 is evidence that the laws that are assumed by it and end up, uh, excuse me, end up reflecting what God spoke on Sinai. Let me say that again. You read from Genesis 3 to Exodus 20, the laws assumed as criteria through which people are judged, the laws assumed there end up reflecting what we get at Sinai. What we find in the narrative is just that. In other words, and this is a quote of somebody else, the matter, the essence, the stuff, the matter of the Decalogue, a technical word for the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, the matter of the Decalogue can be seen in pre-Mosaic biblical history. Okay, so Exodus 20 has the promulgation of the Ten Commandments. This guy, who's a contemporary, uh, Westminster Confession of Faith Presbyterian from the UK, he's saying the essence, the matter of the Ten Commandments can be found through the in the pre-Mosaic revelation written by Moses, but not about Moses, before the Sinai period, going all the way back to the fall into sin. Now, if this is so then the substance or the matter of the Ten Commandments predates Sinai and must have another basis than the Mosaic Covenant alone. This is the pushback. People say, oh, the Ten Commandments didn't, didn't come in until Sinai. Sinai is God's covenant with ancient Israel. Therefore, the Ten Commandments are for Israel as long as Israel is God's covenant nation. Okay, but the pushback on that is, now hold on a second. If you read before that, the things that end up being embodied in, on, the ten, 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 on the stone tablets, thank you, actually appear elsewhere before the promulgation of the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets. So we've we got to deal with that. Where does that come from? Now, I think what becomes clear enough is that many things are assumed to be either right or wrong apart from an explicit word from God on the matter being uttered and recorded for us in Scripture. So what we're going to do is we're going to start looking at the narrative, what Moses tells us what happened, which predates Moses' day. And we're going to see that certain people are painted in a bad light because of their bad conduct. Without a prohibition, explicitly stated, it's just assumed already to be in place. Now, it can't be the law that Israel was under because we're not there yet. But it could be that there's some relationship between what ends up being on stone tablets and what's already assumed by, what's assumed by the, narr by the narrative. Now, I think anyone with biblical sense to anyone with biblical sense. It's obvious that having other gods before the Lord God of truth, idolatry and irreverence toward the holy things of the one and only God are clearly assumed to be wrong prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments. Does anybody want to say, no, it's okay to have other gods. It's okay to worship the true God any way you want, and you can blaspheme his name all you want because the Ten Commandments aren't here yet. I hope you don't want to say that. It's also clear that Exodus 20, and here's the hot potato, Exodus 20 grounds its Sabbath in Genesis chapter 2. For in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. We're going to have to deal with that when we get there. The, 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 the Sabbath command for Israel, once we get to Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, in Exodus 20 grounds itself the basis of it is the activity of God in creation and non-creation. There's something about God and us creating his image, God working and resting, and us working and resting. It goes together somehow, some way. So even the fourth commandment, when it's revealed to Israel, its ground or basis predates Israel. It goes all the way back to creation. Which shouldn't surprise us if you've only read the New Testament if you've read Matthew and then you got as far as Mark chapter 2, somebody in Mark 2 says this, 
The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the Jews. No, it doesn't say that. The Sabbath was made for man. So we have making of man and making of Sabbath basically together. The only way that could be is if there was some sort of Sabbath institution at the making of man. We'll get there someday. The fifth through the tenth commandments of the Decalogue are also pre-echoed in the narrative prior to Sinai. And that's why many have sought to show that all ten of the ten commandments are pre-echoed prior to Sinai, which makes them in some form before it or antecedent to it. Uh, They actually predate the stone tablets, these incidents that we'll look at. So let's look at the Ten Commandments from the fall to Sinai. I'm going to go in the order of the Bible. I'm not going to go, let's look at violations or uh, uh, obedience to the first commandment and then look throughout. And then the second commandment, instead we're just going to start at Genesis uh, chapter 4 and go forward that way, showing you here's violation of the seventh commandment, here's the fifth commandment, here's the, you know, whatever commandment. So first of all, the fourth commandment is pre-echoed early on. I will be very brief here. I already mentioned some of this. But notice Genesis 2, verse 3. Genesis 2, verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now you might say, well, I I don't know about that. Is that a pre-echo of the fourth commandment? Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Turn over to Exodus chapter 16. So this is before Sinai itself. Uh, Exodus chapter 16, there are hints that some sort of Sabbath for Israel predates that which is contained on the the stone tablets. Exodus chapter 16, verses 4 and 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Now that's interesting, now because this is before... The stone tablets, that which was written on them, were revealed. So we have something that sounds Sabbath-ish. You know, we certainly have six days and then a distinct day. So we already have a week, which, by the way, some modern scholars argue that the seventh-day week came with ancient Israel. And my pushback to that is, please read the Bible. It came when God created the heavens and the earth six days, and then he rested. The seven-day week comes from God as a divine exemplar for his creatures, a divine example for his creatures. So then we have Exodus 16, 22 to 30. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, and all the rulers of the congregation came and, and told Moses. This is preparation for a big day that's coming up the next day. For them, the seventh day. This is why the Puritans say, we must prepare ourselves for the Lord's day. There's a principle, you know. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Huh. Has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. You can read all you want. You don't find it. But he has said it. Therefore, he's already said it. Where he say it? Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves. All that remains so to be kept, uh, remains to be kept until morning. So he laid it up until morning as Moses commanded. It did not stink. That's good news. Nor were there any worms in it. That's good news. Then Moses said, eat that today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find in it. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day 
the Sabbath, there will be none. So I could keep going, but I'm not. Now let's turn over to Exodus 20, because here we are at Sinai, and here is the, the, that which God wrote on uh, stone tablets. This is the speaking of those words on Sinai. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 and following. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, this obviously isn't the institution of this. This is recall something, remember something. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. So God is sovereign over our clock, or over our calendars, basically. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you should do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For, here it is, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, since the Lord did that, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, when did he bless the Sabbath day and hallow it? On, on the seventh day of creation, right? He didn't bless the Sabbath day and hallow it when he spoke these words on Sinai. It had already been blessed and hallowed. Now, Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man. So that's just a very brief tracing of some evidence that something's going on with what we end up calling the fourth commandment prior to it being promulgated as the fourth commandment. There's something, there's a creation ordinance. There's something instituted at creation that creates the seventh-day week and a cycle of laboring or working and something else. There's uh, the fourth and sixth commandments, I think, secondly, can be seen in Genesis 4. Genesis 4. I said we wouldn't be flipping all over the place. I guess we kind of are. But look at Genesis 4, 3 through 11. Very interesting passage. And in the process of time, I'm reading from the New King James Version at verse 3 of chapter 4. It says this, and in the process of time. And here is a little note. Looks like a letter, looks like a number one. This is a new Bible, so it's hard for me. And it's really small print. That number one's telling me to go to the margin, and we have another suggested translation. And it is this, at the end of days, it is, that's a very literal translation. And at the end of days, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering. At the end of days, you know what the old Puritan said, well, at the end, it's the end of the week, it's this, six days are over, the next day, seventh day, and what is he going to do on the seventh day? He's going to offer sacrifices. It's a distinct day for worship here. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering. Now, how did, they, how did they know to bring offerings? We know God received one and rejected the other. Therefore, there must, he must have told them, right? Now, we don't have all the information in Scripture. We have some hints and clues that most likely the, the, this was revealed to Adam and Eve, and they were to pass that on to their children because, lo and behold, here's their children offering uh, the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstling of his flock and of their fat. So they're slightly different offerings here. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, not just the person of Abel because he had a good heart, and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry. Do you hear the Puritans say, murder in the bud. Anger is murder in the bud. You know, if, if your anger toward your brother and si or sister for eating the last piece of pizza or whatever um, was given full maturity, you'd strangle him. You'd kill him. <laughs> Sinful anger, that is. Is, is murder in the bud. And it's happening here. Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. You know, the, the face bone's connected to the heart bone, isn't it? And so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? 
You know why? Because thou shalt not murder. And he had murder in the bud in his heart. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. That is, lawlessness or a transgression of the law of God is is right around the corner. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and gave him a high five. This is not what's going on. This is Genesis chapter 4. I thought that Adam and Eve had the law written on their hearts and had original righteousness. Wouldn't their kids be more holy? Something really bad happened, catastrophically bad, happened really fast in the history of the human race. And we're seeing now murder. He killed him. It's a violation of the sixth commandment, by the way. Thou shalt not murder. This isn't self-defense. You go, well, Cain, you know, he's defending himself against Abel. Listen to God's word on this incident. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Do you, you remember when we read... The prohibition, thou shalt not murder, right before we see the murder. You didn't read the prohibition, right? But the actions and the heart attitudes of Cain are interpreted through some sort of lens, some sort of assumed that which is right or that which is wrong. He murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. That's 1 John 3, 11 and 12. Back to Genesis 4. Then the Lord God said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice, now watch this, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So there's a violation of the sixth commandment very clearly, and I think there's an upholding of the fourth, what we end up calling the fourth commandment going on here, because it was at the end of days that they offered this sacrifice. But third, there are general statements in the narrative after the fall before Sinai, two primarily that we'll look at, that indicate some sort of standard of judgment is already in place. Genesis 6 5, I think I read this verse last week. Okay, this is. Uh, This is uh, getting into the time of Noah now. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent, every thought of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If you have a New King James Version, it has a little margin on the note. It says, all the day. That's not a very positive assessment of what's going on down on this earth back then. But this statement here indicates that there's some sort of standard of judgment that's already in place. How could God give this divine verdict without some sort of standard of judgment that that entails these people have violated something, therefore they're, they're wicked and their every intent of their thoughts of their heart are only evil Continually, uh, you go forward in Noah's experience into Acts, uh, excuse me, Genesis eight twenty one, and the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, "I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing." as I have done. So there we have another indictment upon man, and this time, uh, although the intent of his heart is evil from his youth. So here we have the general statements indicating some sort of standard is already in place, assumed to be uh, of divine origin, because this is the divine Verdict upon these image bearers fallen in sin. 
The sixth commandment is also reflected in Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. Now this is, this is the respecting uh, the sanctity of life. Thou shalt not murder. Uh, and so I think there's a pre-echo of the sixth commandment there. The second and the third commandment commandments are reflected in Genesis 12. So now we are making a little progress here. Genesis 12, verses 7 and 8. Then, this is Abraham, or Abram, who gets called by the Lord to leave his homeland and to go elsewhere. Verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Ad, uh, Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. And there, and this is interesting, and there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Huh, he built an altar. There's, there's altars all throughout the book of Genesis. They're quite often on, up on pla- higher places. Who told him to build all altars? Now, when God receives unregulated or unrevealed worship, sometimes in the Old Testament, he blasts the people. This must be regulated worship. If this is acceptable worship, you shall not make for yourself an idol. The flip side, you shall worship God the way he's revealed. So this is uh, upholding the second commandment, and I think the third commandment. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There, here it is again, he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So I think both the second and third commandment are reflected there. The institution of marriage. Uh, is also respected in various places. You can see it in Genesis 12, 10 and following. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt. So now he's going to Egypt to dwell there for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when he, he, he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarah, Sarai, his wife, aha, so we got the institution of marriages going on here. Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, which seems to be a bad thing. But they will let you live. Please say you are my sister. Oops. Honey, please say you're my sister. Please say you're my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. Now that's interesting. So you got the institution of marriage is assumed there, and thou shalt not bear false witness. Seems it seems like somebody's bearing false witness to try to save his own skin here. Seems like to be a violation of his marriage vows as well. He's supposed to protect and preserve her. Instead, or, instead, he's telling her, put yourself out there so that possibly I can get saved from being killed. So we have uh, verses 18 and 19 as well in the same passage. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? The institution of marriage is assumed. Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, Here is your wife. Take her and go on your way. Now, I might have taken her as my wife. It seems that that he's saying, I might have done a a naughty thing, a bad thing, taking taking another man's wife. Um, Pharaoh assumes marriage as an institution, but Abram, Abram and Sarai both lied about her relationship to Abraham. What a... A bad Adam, Abraham was, wasn't he? Or a good Adam. He he did just kind of like Adam did. Sexual sin is obvious in Genesis 19, verse 5. This is Sodom now. Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 5. And they called, and they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may Know them, and the New King James has in italics, carnally. Often, 
not all times, but often, when the Old Testament says uh, Adam knew Eve, that's not like they're playing chess together, okay? They're doing that which ends up producing children if God blesses the womb. So this isn't a good thing. That's why it's, that's why that word carnally is there. Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Romans 1, 21 or 24. Romans 1, 27, likewise also, the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. So there it is, carnally. This is a violation of the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, which is the worst way or the highest form of the violating of that command. But there are lesser, lesser ones, fornication of all sorts. This would be that. In Genesis chapter 20, in the first 11 verses, Abraham again fudged with the truth about Sarah, again out of fear. So we have fudging, which means lying, at least twice. I think there's like three or four or five or six illustrations of it, just with Abraham and or his sons, liars. We're not going to read that text in Genesis 20. Genesis 26.5 indicates a standard of judgment once again. Genesis 26.5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept, now this is very interesting, kept my charge. This is Genesis 26.5. My charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Are all those synonymous? Could be. But there is some sort of standard of judgment indicated by these words, by these phrases here. Something more is going on than just what is written. There are assumed uh, ethical absolutes that are normative for these people prior to the promulgation of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And when you end up comparing the two, you're going, oh, these are pre-echoes of that which is, ends up on stone tablets. By the way, 2 Corinthians 3, the stone tablets come up again in 2 Corinthians 3, but there's an antithesis. There, there's a, a, an opposite comparison there from the writing on stone tablets to Christ writing by virtue of the Spirit on our hearts. So there's something going on there with the stone tablets and and hearts under the new covenant as well. We'll get there in three or four decades. So here's this uh, um, standard of judgment going on here in Genesis 26.5. Look at verse 7, though, just as an aside here. And the men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say she is my wife, because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebecca, because she is beautiful to behold. So here's deception again. So, kids, when you get busted deceiving your parents, you just say, it's being like Abraham. But that doesn't mean it's good or right, right? I want to be like Abraham. At what point in his life? You know, when he was a weasel, not protecting his wife as he ought to, putting her neck on the line instead of possibly his. In Genesis 27, 19. Genesis 27, 19. Jacob said to his father, Honor thy father and thy mother. I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. So there's evidence of a fifth commandment kind of thing going on there as well. Genesis 27, 41 to 43. Genesis 27, 41 to 43. So Esau hated, that doesn't sound like that's a good thing, right? He hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand then. 
I will kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she went and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran. So you've got murder in the bud going on there, and you've got honor and respect for parents. All that's going on there. Genesis 31. Genesis 31. Verses 6 and 7. And you know that with all my might, I have served your father. There's the principle of respecting. Yet your father, Jacob, has deceived me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not allow him to hurt me. 31.19 Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. Okay, so you got the second commandment and the third commandment and the first commandment and the eighth commandment. Is it the eighth commandment? Thou shalt not steal. Yes, the eighth. 31, 34, and 35. Now Rachel had taken the household idols, put them in the camel's saddle, and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is with me. Liar. Well, at least appears to be. And he searched, but did not find the household idols. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Genesis 34, verses 2, 5, and 7. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. Okay, so there. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Then we have verse 5. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Verse 7. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. Okay, so there's an ought, there's an ought notness here. Sixth, seventh, and tenth commandments are reflected there. Genesis 35, 1 and 2. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. This is the first three commandments, I think, are reflected here. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. True God is to be worshipped the way he has revealed. Do not trifle with holy things. Genesis 37, verse 31. So they took Joseph's tunic killed a kid of the goats, remember this is Joseph's brothers, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent a tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, this is is a violation of the fifth commandment. They're not honoring their father. This is a violation of the ninth commandment. We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. No, Dad, that's not what happened. We did it. We did it. We sold him into bondage and slavery. They didn't didn't cough it up, did they? Joseph's brothers lied to their father. And then Joseph, again, 39, chapter 39, verses 7 
and following. And it came to pass after these things. Now again, this is a narrative, okay? Joseph is in Potiphar's house now. His brothers had sold him into slavery. He's in Egypt. We read these things and we, Joseph's our hero. Why? Because he didn't violate certain commands that we end up finding in the Ten Commandments that aren't even published yet, at least not on the stone tablets or written about by Moses. But yet he's our hero. And it came to Joseph's our hero. In the midst of being tempted, he doesn't give in. In the midst of being treated bad by his own family, his own brothers, his brothers did not believe in him. Remember John 7? Could Joseph be? No, no way. You know what all the old guys said? Of course Joseph's a type of Christ. Anyway, keep going here. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. Whatever that is, doesn't sound right. You already have a husband, woman. And she said, lie with me. Uh Uh-oh. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. And he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against him? No, it's, did you ever memorize that verse? How can, then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? What is sin? Lawlessness, a violation of the law of God. So it was, as he spoke to Joseph day by day, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. The Spirit drove the incarnate Son of God out into the wilderness. Forty days he was tempted by the devil. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought, in, he, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice, Liar! And it happened. When he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. Now, you know, you know, you know what lying does. It breeds more lies. That's what sin does. So she kept his garment with her, She kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came into me to mock me. So it happened, as I lifted my voice and cried out, that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was, when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. So here we have Joseph's integrity and this woman's violations of various flagrant violations of the law of God. So here's my conclusion. I think the evidence is clear. Prior to the formal or the public revelation of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, each of the Ten Commandments is pre-echoed in some form. Now that has caused many before us to conclude that the stuff of which was written, stuff of that which was written on Adam and Eve's heart and ours, though scrambled and mangled and messed up because of God's judgment upon us due to the fall into sin, the stuff of the Ten Commandments is, the stuff of 
that which is written on our heart, is reflected by the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Commandments reflect that stuff of which is written on our hearts. Now, since the the fall into sin, we do not interact with this moral compass consistently, right? If we did act consistently with the moral compass within, would we need a savior? No, we wouldn't need a savior. If we acted uh, consistently with a moral compass within, we would be saying, whatever happened to Adam and Eve didn't happen to me. I didn't get judged along with them. We don't want to say that. In Adam all die, none of us, though we have a moral compass within that gets through to varying degrees and it's different with each person, it's not universal and it's different in various cultures throughout the history of the mankind. Everyone has a moral compass within and nobody does with that moral compass what ought to be done with it, respect it, honor it. Darkness has come upon our souls. The basic instinct that some things are right and some things are wrong is still with us, though it looks different. It manifests itself different in different cultures. We still have that sense. One of my children used to come in and knock on the door at three in the morning and say, my heart is beeping. And after we figured out what was going on, say, how did you sin against your sister? What did you do? Or your mother. Usually I cheated on a math test. He's still got a D on this thing. He's not a good cheater, you know. Uh, My heart is beeping. I have a conscience. I have a little chaplain in my soul that's saying there are some things that are always right and always wrong and you've violated again, you guilty sinner. That's, that's, that's the chaplain in there. The, the conscience has a function even in our fallen state. But, but what our nature, what our constitution can't give us is the remedy to our plight. The remedy to our plight, to our dirty conscience, to our dirty hearts, to our guilty souls, to our bad records and our ba- uh, bad record in the past and a bad heart and a surely a bad record in the future. The answer to our plight is not dig in deeper. You got to go find the spark within. There's, there's a luminary in your soul that you just haven't found. The savior of, for you is within you. No. The remedy for our messed up created state has to come from the creator himself. And that's why the New Testament uses new creation language when it talks about what Christ does for sinners. You must be born again. That's new creation language. If any man is in Christ, new creation He's united to, if you're united to Christ by faith, if you believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the title to glory and, and, uh, and all the promises that are yea and amen in him, if you believe those things, you get the benefits, not by virtue of being good yourself, but because he was good for you. And if you're united to him, you're in this thing called new creation. Matter of fact, it was in one of the, One of the hymns, I think, that we sang uh, echoed this new creation language. We don't need to go to our old self and just, you know, tune it up. Call up Brother Eddie. You got your tools now out. Bring your tools over and fix me up. Our plight is way worse than that. It takes incarnation of God. It takes the assumption of our nature the assumption of our duties, the assumption of our liabilities in order to get us back to God. That's exactly what we have in the good gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word.
We pray that through the difficulty of going out through passage after passage after passage, but trying to show the basic thread, the basic, the same thing, that there's something going on, some requirements that were imposed upon the people that are either judged or praised in all those passages that we looked at. Please help us sort these things out in our own minds and to glorify and to honor you in light of what we learn. What we ought to learn is this. We're just like those people. We need a Savior. The only Savior is Christ Jesus the Lord. So bless your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.